Uh, this morning, we're looking at the humility of the cross. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read part of that and also part of chapter 2. And uh, then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, and as was mentioned by Ben earlier, the guys will wear masks and gloves, and they will hand it to you. And so, uh, parents, you'll have to make sure your, your kids that are not saved, they don't hold up their hand and get it handed to them. And um, if you would rather not participate, then you just don't hold your hand up, and they won't put it in your hand. And don't try and be silly and open your mouth and lean forward. It's a serious thing, and so we'll take... Now, normally, we pass out the bread and then the juice, but we're going to do them both at once so that you can... Uh, so the guys preparing it, they're not handing it out to you and then putting it in their mouth and then serving your juice with the same hand they just had to your mouth, just to keep it a little uh, better for us. So uh, we'll be doing that today at the end of the service. So uh, looking at the humility of the cross... The first part of this is the humility of Christ and what Jesus Christ endured. And we'll look at that, and then we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What he endured, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi and said, Being found in appearance or fashion as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself. The one who spoke the universe into creation came here to die for those he created. Never let the wonder of that stop baffling you. The one who created trees and had them bring forth from the earth, he then died on a cross made from one of those trees. He was shrouded in glory before the angels and with God the Father in heaven. Yet he ended his life on earth, naked and exposed, as if he were a common criminal. The scripture says in, in uh, John 1, He is light and in him is no darkness at all. And yet for three hours on the cross, he endured the darkness as he took on our sin. And during those three hours, the scripture says he was transformed from looking like a man to looking like a worm. He was so beaten, he didn't even look human, bearing the penalty of our sins. Maybe that's why his friends didn't recognize him at first when they saw him after the resurrection. He was so marred from the crucifixion that his features didn't look the same. God himself was so committed to his personal creation, wanting a personal relationship with humanity, that God himself, God the Son, Jesus the Christ died on the cross for us. And when you picture him dying on the cross, sometimes we emphasize like the nails being pounded in and, and, and that pounding in. But the physical suffering on the cross was the easy part. The hard part was bearing the sins of the world. In agony, he cried out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned away from God the Son because the Scripture says Christ became sin for us. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The humility of Christ, that he would be willing to do that for us. And then there is the humility of those who follow Christ. And that's what Paul's writing about here in this letter to the church in Corinth. Because the intelligentsia, the people who think they're really smart, the intelligentsia in Paul's day and in our day think the cross is foolish. So look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Not through foolish preaching, but the foolishness of the message. We teach the truth of God's word and the intelligentsia reject it. They don't conform to it. In fact, even in a lot of churches, they don't look to the Word of God for the truth of God's Word. They quote other people. And so he says uh, in verse uh, 22 that the Jews request a sign. The Jews did that in Jesus' life. They requested a sign, show us. And, and uh, then he said the Greeks seek after wisdom. So they were seeking after the intellectual wisdom by bypassing the wisdom of, this, of the Lord, rather. And so he said, we, in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I love verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren. Some people get really arrogant. They, you know, they've studied. They're, they're theologians. And I, I like what he says. You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Most of the people who are called to serve God and minister in his name Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put the shame, to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things that are not respected. And the things which are despised has God chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Years ago, there was a preacher called D.L. Moody. And when I was in Bible school, I had an, a friend. He was ahead of me a couple of years. I was better friends with his, his younger brother, Tony. But he was D.L. Moody. And uh, that was his name. So he... he made a big deal out of being D.L. Moody. But uh, the truth is, you know, D.L. Moody was preaching over in England. 
And there were some great theological schools over in England and some studied professors and that. And, and one of them listened to D.L. Moody preach and he went up to him and he said to Mr. Moody, he said, Mr. Moody, you don't have the education that I have and the learning that I have. It's obvious that what God is doing through you, it's just a work of God. It's not because you're great. It's because God's great. And, and the guy was trying to put D.L. Moody down. And D.L. Moody said, I know. It's just like what Paul said. He's using me to confound the wise. That's what God does. Now, occasionally, there are pastors who, when they were growing up, they were really nice kids. And, and they were nice kids their whole life. And then uh, they got saved and they got following the Lord. And then God called them into ministry. And there's some people who were raised. But often, the guys that are pastors, some of their friends growing up, they look at that and they're like, that had to be God. Because that could have never happened from him. You know, that's the work of God in our lives. God uses us. And we don't have to be brilliant we don't have to be extremely educated. We just have to know the Lord, love the Lord, serve the Lord. He goes on in verse number 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring you the testimony of God. Now, did Paul know how to do that? Oh, yeah. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Uh, they were trained in debate and dialogue, and Paul could really spellbound an audience if he'd wanted to. He chose not to because he wanted the work to be done by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people. He didn't, after Paul preached, he didn't want people saying, wow, what a speaker Paul is. He wanted people to say, wow, what a savior Jesus is. He wanted the focus to be on Christ. So he said in verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, I've known people get so focused on, now my brain can't even think what it is, defending apologetics, so, so focused on apologetics, defending your faith, that they ignore the Scripture. And they use all these logical arguments and logical fallacies of those who reject Christ. And truly, honestly, it doesn't make sense to reject Christ. It doesn't. Uh, and, and in Scripture, Paul said in other places, the, the logical conclusion is that we would receive Christ and dedicate ourselves to follow Christ. Uh, but using logical argumentation isn't what touches hearts. What the Holy Spirit of God uses is the Word of God. 
So Paul said, I limited my arguments. I limited so that I could really focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I could show from the Old Testament that this was the pattern that God said would happen, would come. And so I could prove that we follow Christ, not intellect. We don't achieve a level of education and thereby we become saved. We receive a gift of salvation by faith through grace. By grace through faith. All right, so the humility of those who follow Christ. Paul didn't worry about those who rejected him or his message. He focused on Jesus Christ and on sharing Christ with people because Christ died to save them. And so he shared the news of Christ, and then rejoiced with those who received Christ. And he didn't stress about those who rejected him. He focused on Christ. Now, I told you I love verse 25 of chapter 1, that uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than man, the weakness of God is stronger than man. (coughs) Excuse me. My voice was fine until I stood up to speak. Uh, and what, let's do, just, just go back in the history in the Scripture and let's look at a couple examples of how God's wisdom blew away the wisdom of this world. There was a time in, in, uh, that is, Israel was moving across uh, the Jordan River and they were facing the battle of Jericho and Jericho was a, Jericho was a great and walled city. And uh, it was destroyed by the Israelites. And God gave them a battle plan. And their battle plan wasn't to sneak spies in and attack from within. It wasn't to throw hooks over the wall and raise themselves over. It wasn't to try and blow up the wall. Uh, The plan was they walk around the wall for seven days. And on the seventh day, they walk around the wall seven times. And then they shout while the priests blast on the trumpets and the walls collapsed. So if you were a guy in Jericho and the people would show up and you'd look over the wall, they'd show up, they'd walk around the wall and they'd walk away. Well, you wonder what's going on. And then the next day, the same thing. And the next day, the same thing. And the next, and the next, and the next. And then the seventh day, you're like, oh, here they come again. They're walking around the wall. If you've ever watched the, um, what's the silly, Veggie Tales, you know. Keep walking, but you won't knock down our wall. They, uh, but they, ju- they just kept walking. And then all of a sudden they shout, and let's just say that you're leaning on the wall, and you're looking out at them, and you're laughing at them. What happens to you? The wall crushes down, and you fall over. God delivered the city, not using normal human methodologies. It was a divine conquest. And then uh, we read about the battle with the Midianites. And uh, the angel of God goes up to a man named Gideon and calls him a mighty man of valor while Gideon's hiding 
trying to shift wheat, trying to thresh wheat and get the wheat separated from the chaff in the worst possible place down in the bottom in a wine press instead of being up on the top of the hill where the wind could blow better. And so he's hiding. And the angel calls him a mighty man of valor. And then Gideon has to face uh, a valley full of the enemy. And Gideon only has... uh, 32,000 people with him. And God said, you have too many. So he gets it down to 10,000. No, you have too many. So he gets it down to 300. And he's right. All right, here's your battle strategy. We're not going to have 300 Rambos go in and attack the enemy. We're going to just gather around the enemy and we're going to hold pitchers with candles in them and trumpets. And when the signal is given, we're going to blast on the trumpets and we're going to smash the pitcher so the candle light shows. And so the enemy wakes up hearing the blast of trumpets surrounding them and the candles showing enemy all around them and they ended up killing themselves, not intentionally, but they were fighting whoever showed up. And they didn't know who it was because they were surrounded and they fought and fought and fought and died. And the people of God just stood on the hillside and watched. What, what a crazy battle strategy. Suppose you were like a, you know, combat trained, you know, and you go in and, and you sit down and your general says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Trumpets and candles and we're going to take on the enemy. I mean, if you were a Marine, you'd say, let's do it. But, you know, the other guys, they wouldn't do that. They'd be afraid. Uh, But it didn't make sense, humanly speaking. But in the wisdom of God, it made perfect sense. And then there was the battle against the Assyrians. This one's even better. Hezekiah has this battle against the Assyrians and they've surrounded, they've stormed the area and they've announced they're going to annihilate Israel if they don't capitulate. And so Hezekiah pours out his heart before the Lord and God says, hey Hezekiah, you just keep praying, I've got this, I'm going to take care of this. And they won the victory without the king even sounding the battle charge. God brought the victory. Joshua, Gideon, and Hezekiah each had to agree that they would fight God's way, and then God brought the victory. The battle belongs to the Lord. And in our day, worldly wisdom says it took the universe billions of years before planet Earth was well-formed, and then Billions of years uh, before life could form on planet Earth. But God said, from the beginning, He made a fully formed, fully functioning, mature universe. And with all kinds of life on it, trees and plants and animals and sea creatures and, and two human beings, all in one week. It didn't take billions of years or even millions of years or even thousands of years. It took God speaking it into existence. The wisdom of God overcomes the wisdom of this world. The world says that death is the end of life. 
Well, they said that about Jesus too. How'd that work out, huh? He rose from the dead victorious, and, and he lives, and he reigns, and he intercedes for us. Uh, he guaranteed from the beginning uh, that when we trust Christ as our Savior, from that moment, we are secure in him because he demonstrated he has the power over death. And the world says, this life is all there is. Maybe you've heard the phrase, one and done, right? That, that's how a lot of people view life, one and done. This is your only shot at it, so make it last, make it good, one and done. That's all there is. And, and you live on in the memories of others, and that's it. But the Bible says that our life on earth is just a small fraction of our life because we are eternal beings. And we will live forever in heaven with the Lord if we've received Christ as Savior or in the lake of fire if we have not. We will live forever. God's wisdom vastly surpasses the wisdom of this world. And the people who follow God must admit it's, it's not their wisdom, it's God's wisdom. It's not their strength, it's God's strength that makes a difference. And Paul writes it out here, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's all of God, it's his work, his grace, his, I am saved and on my way to heaven, not because I was good. I'm saved and on my way to heaven because God is good. And he sent a savior to die in my place because I was a sinner just like you and we needed our sins to be forgiven. So our message is the message of Christ. Our hope is the hope of Christ. Our glory is the cross of Christ. Our greatest good is accomplished when we trust and follow Jesus Christ. We keep sharing the message of the gospel. We keep uh, trusting in the truth of Scripture. And God blesses our hearts, our lives, and our labors. The cross in Paul's day was a sign of suffering. To willingly die on the cross was a radical and unthinkable thing. The Bible doesn't spell it out clearly, but I picture it this way, that normally when a guy is going to be nailed to the cross, he's fighting, he's trying to jerk his hand back, trying to jerk his feet back, and he's got, and they got a couple guys holding on to him while a third guy pounds the nails in to hold him on the cross. And he cries in agony, he pulls away, and, and I picture Jesus laying on the cross, holding his hand out, letting him pound it in, because he knew what he was doing was bigger than his own life. He had to die in our place so that we could live in his place someday. The cross has become a symbol of victory. We have crosses in churches and some people wear cross necklaces. I don't wear a necklace, but some people wear them. I have had a cross tie tag. Um, and and it, it's a symbol of victory. Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and he paid the penalty for us. And through Christ, the cross 
became the sign of our salvation. So in the early church, they would make the cross the sign of the cross. They would write it, sign it on buildings. And sometimes they would use uh, the uh, fish because uh, representing Christ. And that was directions for how to get to the meeting place. And the cross became a symbol of hope and healing and help for the world. To those who are saved, the cross is a demonstration of the power of God. To those who are not saved, the, Christ, the cross is a demonstration of the judgment of God against sin. And people need to receive Christ to avoid that judgment. 